If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find that on page 955 of the Pew Bibles. 955 of the Pew Bibles. And if you don't own a good Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The most important currency in the world, at least right now, is the American dollar. It's what's considered the, it's the world's reserve currency. But the most important currency in my house is called the Sarverbuck. That's right, we have our own currency. It's a worthless outside of our house, but in our home, our kids exchange it at the Sarver Family General Store. There, our kids can buy whatever's in stock, Gum, ice cream, stickers, a later bedtime, Pokemon cards, and more. They mostly buy Pokemon cards. They receive Sarver Bucks as a reward for virtuous behavior, like taking a risk and failing and then trying again, for doing something that maybe surprises us, like an extraordinary act of generosity or kindness, or for accomplishing, accomplishing some kind of feat, like memorizing the books of the Bible. Our five-year-old daughter, Pavy, twice now has saved 75 Sarver bucks. Now, you don't know the exchange rate. It means nothing to you. That is a lot. The biggest prize. She's bought the two largest prizes so far in her house. One was a big Pikachu Pokemon card pack. The other, a big Pikachu Pokemon binder. She sets her eye on the prize. She works toward that prize. She kept all her bucks for that day. And then the time comes to make an exchange or something that always throws her off. You have to give up your bucks to get the prize. In fact, the first time she got to 75, I told her, it's enough. You can get what you want now. She goes, great. Can I buy gum? There's three Starbucks. bucks. I was like, Pavy, you'll lose the three. You won't have enough. She doesn't get it. You have to give it up to get the item. We all know that the desired object only becomes yours when you pay what it's worth. Okay, you have to make an exchange. The currency, more than paper, represents hard work. You're giving it up for the object of your desire. Okay, we explain it to her. Oh, yes, she gets it. She gladly gives up 75 bucks to gain something more valuable in her eyes. Pikachu. She makes payments. She sacrifices. She exchanges. Sometimes you have to buy something begrudgingly, like new car tires, a new hot water heater, something you don't want to exchange for. Sometimes something will so capture your attention and your affection that you're pleased to give your money away for it. You don't even look back. Why? It's worth the cost. In your eyes, worth more than the cost. In Christian worship, we declare the worth of God. Worship is essentially a valuation. We are telling God that he's worthy. We're telling him how worthy that we think he is. How worthy. We declare that he is supremely worthy. In our gatherings, explicitly we declare this in a prayer of praise. We declare this in the songs that we sing. We declare that God is worthy of all possible glory and honor and riches. In endless praise, we sing that God is worthy, worthy, worthy. 
In my worth is not in what I own. We sing that God is our greatest treasure. We sing, I will trust him in no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. If God is indeed our greatest treasure, he's worthy of all that we have. Of course, it's easy to profess that God is worthy of all that we possess. It's much harder to actually give God what's ours when there's opportunity to do so. And yet, it's costly worship that honors God because it reveals that he's our treasure. Cheap worship is hardly worship at all. Sometimes we're put in a position to sacrifice to make an exchange, as it were, but we don't want to. We think that we can cling to what we have and somehow add God to it. And yet it's actually our sacrifice that reveals what we think God is worth. Conversely, it's our unwillingness to sacrifice that tells God what we think he's actually worth. Both our sacrifices for God and our unwillingness to sacrifice declare God's worth. One says he's worthy, the other says he's not. The aim in worship is to declare and to demonstrate that God is indeed supremely valuable. We do that by giving up of ourselves to him. This is Christian worship. Keep that in mind as we read the text. If you're able, I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Again, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 11. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, Leave her alone. She is kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning is this, God is supremely worthy of all that we possess because he is supremely glorious. God is supremely worthy of all that we possess because he is supremely glorious. That is, he is supremely valuable. God is more valuable and satisfying than all that we have and is worth everything we can give him. We'll make two observations from the text this morning on Christian worship. 
First, true worship sacrifices for God. True worship sacrifices for God. Conversely, our second point, false worship sacrifices God. True worship is willing to give up for God. False worship actually will give up God to keep or maintain something else. Again, in worship, we declare the worth of God, his infinite and absolute worth. But all that we can give God is all that we have. In worship, we declare to God that all that we have is his because he's worthy of it and more. This means that true worshipers will joyfully and sacrificially give up what they have to gain more of God because he is worthy. He's infinitely worthy of what we possess and more. False worshipers, on the other hand, will not give up what they possess for God. They'll give up God for what they possess. In fact, they will use God as a means of gain. It's this kind of fork in the road exchange, give up the world to gain more of God or give up God to gain more of the world that reveals what kind of worshiper we actually are. True worship sacrifices for God. False worship sacrifices God. First, true worship sacrifices for God. Again, we declare the worth and the value of God by giving him all that we have and are. When the time comes, we demonstrate it. We actually choose God. We begin in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. And we're at a turning point in the book of John. We enter Jesus' Passion Week. Six days before Passover. The Passover, of course, is when Israel would commemorate their escape from slavery in Egypt. It was only made possible as God, their God, passed over their sins, but not the sins of their enemies. Why? Because in faith they covered their doorposts in the blood of a lamb. There was a substitute for sin. John the Baptist, very early on for us in chapter 1, framed the ministry of Jesus when he saw Christ and declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This coming Passover, six days from now, it will be like none before it. The Lamb who will die is none other than God. God come into the world for his people. God become man, become Lamb. John the Baptist frames the ministry for Christ for us. John the Gospel writer frames the ministry of Christ for us. He dedicates half of the book. Half of his letter is dedicated to the Passion Week and resurrection of Jesus. So the eternal life that we've been hearing about, that Jesus has been promising us, it only comes by means of his death on a cross. The spirit that he's been offering, the relationship with his father, all of it, it comes by means of the cross. T minus six days. Verse one puts us back in Bethany on the eve of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. The last time that Jesus was in Bethany was one for the books. If you missed it or aren't familiar with the Gospel of John, Jesus' friend Lazarus died. 
John make note of this two times in the text we just read. Jesus' friend Lazarus got sick. Jesus was not in Bethany at the time. Lazarus' two sisters sent message for Jesus to come back and to heal their brother. Jesus heard it, and because he loved Lazarus, he waited so that he would die. How is this an act of love? Well, Christ was able to display for him, for the sisters, for his disciples, for all, that Jesus indeed has the power to give life. That Jesus indeed has the power to defeat death. That though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in Christ we can have life. That though one day our bodies will die and decay, in Christ they will live again. There in Bethany, the creator created. Life itself gave life. Jesus turned back death. And so he comes to Bethany and they throw him a party. Verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining, reclining at the table with him. Think less a dinner party, more probably what would have been like a banquet in the honor of Christ. Several families would have come together to put this on. We know of at least two. Matthew and Mark locate this meal at Simon the leper's house. We, of course, see Martha serving. Lazarus is there making full use of his body once again. He's not just sitting, he's reclining at the table. I think it's easy to assume that the major occasion for the meal is not just to honor Jesus, but to thank him for raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, our Jesus, can turn a funeral into a birthday party. So they throw a meal, a banquet for Jesus that makes sense. Like if somebody helps you move, the least you can do You give him a little pizza. Okay, if Jesus is as Martha confessed there in chapter 11, verse 27, the Messiah, the Son of God, come into the world. If Jesus is as he revealed himself in verse 26, the resurrection and the life. If Jesus brought your friend and your brother back from the grave, he's worthy of a meal. He's worth more than a meal. We will do more than simply lay food before him for all of eternity. I promise you this. And Mary gets it. Verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Probably not something you've ever seen at a dinner party. If I'm at a dinner and a pound of essential oils comes out, I think I'm being sold something. (laughs) Martha serves, Lazarus reclines, Mary does something different. What I so appreciate about Mary, what I wish was truer of me, she can't get enough of Jesus. Like, being close to Jesus is not enough for her. She wants to be right where he is. It's not enough to simply be in the same home or to share a meal with him. She wants to be closer. 
We see this every time with her, right? Just a chapter back, Jesus calls for Mary. In her grief, she runs to him. She collapses at his feet and weeps. Luke chapter 10, Martha invites Jesus into her home. Martha serves. Where is Mary? She is at the feet of Jesus, clinging to his every word. John 12, again, Martha is serving a fine thing, but Mary wants more. Unworthy to untie his sandal straps, no doubt, but bold enough to be at his feet. Brothers and sisters, are you drawn to Jesus this way? When do you spend time with him? Do you spend time with him in the mornings on the Lord's day? Do you go to him when you're tired and grieving, when you're weary? Do you go to him when you're in joy? You might ask yourself, is there enough Jesus in my life? Jesus is always inviting us for more. Martha is serving, Lazarus is reclining, Mary opts for something different. Again, verse 3, she took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet. Now, unless you regularly buy nard, it's probably worth explaining what it is. It's made from the root of a plant in India. Okay, this is before trains and planes and barges. Think about how rare and expensive it would be, how difficult it would be to get it in Israel. This is why if you look at verse 3, John stresses that it's pure nard. Okay, you know loads of folks are walking around Jerusalem wearing that fake nard. (laughs) Fake nard, fake Rolex, (laughs) bought it on a street in New York. John says this is not that. This is the highest quality of absolute purity and rarity, it's expensive. In fact, Judas tells us in verse five, it's worth 300 denarii. One denarius is one day's wage. It's a one day's wage for a normal working class person. This unused jar is worth almost an entire year's salary. Mary walks into a dinner party holding something like an annual salary. She cracks it open and pours it all over Jesus. It's a costly gift. It's a lavish gift. Could you imagine doing this yourself? Have you ever purchased anything that costs your annual salary? Maybe a car. Imagine taking something like that and dumping it at the feet of somebody else. Normally you pay for a foot rub. Imagine taking a year's worth of work and sweat and tears for the chance of touching somebody else's foot. It would be foolish. Unless those feet belonged to Jesus. You couldn't pay enough money in the world to have the right to touch his feet. Her gift is costly. It comes, more, it comes with more than simply financial loss. 
What do you think everybody at this party is thinking about her? Her financial recklessness would have been the least of their concerns. She doesn't just anoint his feet. Look at verse 3 there at the end. She wiped his feet with her hair. What do you think people are thinking about her? Do you think her social rank is rising? Her estimation in their eyes is climbing? Are her opportunities for employment increasing? Do you think she's growing in followers and favor? Do you think she cares? You can imagine that in ancient Near Eastern society, feet were filthy. Okay, taking your shoes off when you got home didn't help when you were wearing chacos through streets made of dirt. You didn't touch other people's feet. Foot washing, in fact, was so denigrating, you couldn't require your Jewish slaves to do it. It was a task even too humiliating for them. It's not for Mary. She doesn't simply wash his feet with water. She uses expensive perfume. She doesn't simply use a towel. She uses her hair. She uses her hair. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that nature teaches us that a woman's longer hair is her glory. What he's meaning, part of it is that her hair displays that she's made in the image of God as a woman in a unique way, in a way that it doesn't for a man. It's like her crown. Okay, I think we kind of understand this implicitly. If you think about anybody losing their hair to chemo, it's a tragedy. Okay, a tragedy. If I had cancer and I had chemo and I lost my hair, it would be sad. I'm already starting to thin. Like, it's going to happen. You know, you might shed a single tear. If a woman loses her hair to chemo, it's a greater tragedy. We understand there's something about it that's being robbed of her. Paul says it's her natural crown or glory. Mary is using what everyone in that room would have considered one of her most glorious features, her hair, to wipe what everyone would have thought Christ's most inglorious, his feet. Mary gets that us at our highest, at our best, is lower than Christ at his worst. She understands that the whole of us is holy underneath Christ. There is no part of our person, no aspect of our lives that rises above the lordship and the value of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we cannot get low enough and he cannot get high enough. This is the heart of Christian worship. Mary demonstrates it for us as she humbles herself to honor Christ. In an evening, she spends a lifetime of financial and social capital. What would compel her to do this? Why would she do this? She has found something more valuable. She has found someone more glorious. She has found a treasure more valuable than any earthly 
riches. She has found friendship with Christ more pleasing than the favor of men. She has found the love of Jesus more satisfying than that of a spouse. The joy of Christ fuller than the best of wine. She has found that his bread is more fulfilling, his waters are soul-quenching, his wisdom is enlightening. She has found that there is no one like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, is this the Jesus that you know? Who but our Jesus can weep with us at the grave and then bring our loved ones back? Who but our Jesus can give sight to the blind can cause the lame to walk, can heal sickness and stop death and feed the masses and transform water and lead us to safety across the storms of life. Who but Jesus would march to Jerusalem to be strung out by hateful men like a lamb for slaughter? Who but Jesus would take our sin and give us his righteousness? Worthy of a meal, you betcha, and so much more. Jesus is worthy of all the praises that we can shout. He's worthy of all the songs that we can sing. He's worthy of us fighting our sin in our hearts and in our homes. He is worthy that we love our spouses, that we instruct our children, that we serve each other without grumbling. Jesus is worthy that we take the gospel from the center of our city to the ends of the earth, even if it costs us our lives. Our Jesus is worthy. He is supremely glorious, supremely satisfying, and therefore supremely worthy of all that we can give, and all that we can give is all that we've got. He's worth it and more. Sacrifice is at the heart of worship because, again, we're making evaluation of God. We're declaring that he is worthy. On the flip side, it means whatever we're unwilling to give God is where we tell him his value stops. Brothers and sisters, how valuable is God to you? What does your worship of him look like? Can it be reduced to singing some songs on some Sundays? If you want to know what your worship of God is like, it would be better to ask, how are you sacrificing for God? Like Mary, are you adorning Jesus with your best, the best of your time? Do you sit at his feet in the morning or only after you've given him what's left after you've scrolled? Do you give him the best of your finances or only some of what's left when you have plenty? Have you given Jesus the best of your identity? Are you willing to risk your reputation for him? Brothers and sisters, do you find Jesus so glorious, so wonderful, so satisfying that you will exchange temporal riches and comfort to gain more of him? That is Christian worship. Mary makes an exchange here. But she doesn't come out losing. Okay, in worship, we always give something up, but we're never poorer for it. We gain more than we can give because Jesus is worth more than we have. Jesus explains it like this in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. It's like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, 
he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. We sacrifice, we make an exchange, but in the end we gain more. In 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries were martyred trying to take the gospel to an unreached tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. Elliot was, Jim Elliott was 28 years old. He left behind his wife and his 10-month-old daughter. He famously scribbled in his journal about seven years before, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Brothers and sisters, Mary was not taking this alabaster jar with her to heaven. The opinion of Simon the leper was not going to help her on the day of judgment. You can't keep both, and why would you want to? We give up to gain. This is Christian worship. The only thing she's caring about in the moment is Jesus. Like, how do I express my gratitude to Jesus. How do I display the worth of Jesus? What can I give up to gain more of Jesus? But what if it costs? It will, and it's worth it. This is Christian worship. Genuine worshipers are willing to give up what they cannot keep to gain, that which they cannot lose, God. False worshipers will give up God to keep or gain more of what they have now and will not be able to hold on to later. We come now to consider what we're so tempted to, which is false worship. Whereas genuine worshipers will sacrifice things for God, false worshipers will sacrifice God for things. In fact, as we'll see with Judas and the religious leaders, they will use God as a pretense for their own gain. After Mary's humbling and Christ-exalting act, verse 4, then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas immediately protests Mary's actions, and on the face of it, his objection sounds pious. Like, Jesus, wouldn't it have been better if we just sold this a year's worth of salary and used it to help the poor? Like, Jesus, you're great. You're great. You're great. Trust me, one of the 12, you're great. We could have used this to help so many poor people. We could have built 10 wells. We could have built a home for orphans. We could have funded an under-resourced school. It sounds pious and spiritual and rational because God cares for the poor. As we've been learning from Pastor Joshua in the book of James, God cares about the poor. In fact, Jesus would have been happy if this was sold for the poor. He commends what Mary does because she does something even better in this moment. But as we're hearing the book of James, James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
James 2, 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? God cares about the poor. This is what's so insidious and difficult to discern about false worship. It masquerades behind what looks like true worship. It aims to promote itself behind something that God actually cares about. Now, John, the gospel writer, gives us insight into Judas, verse 4. This is the Judas who would betray him for a silver coin. And there in verse 6, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Ah. Any gift to the poor would have ultimately been a gift to Judas because he's been shaving off the top. The reason this upsets Judas is because when Jesus gains, Judas loses. He embodies the spirit of anti-worship. Jesus must decrease, I must increase. This is not the first or the last time that those in the name of Christ will claim to help the poor and yet do them harm. I think of two movements in particular, two more recent movements. The first one's probably more obvious. It's the prosperity gospel. False teachers have fleeced the poor all over the world for the last hundred years, telling them that if you would only give all your money to God, God will give you more wealth and health and prosperity. This is anti-gospel. The true gospel proclaims that God has secured for you justification now, adoption now, sanctification now, and yes, eternal glory forever on the other side of death. And it's not because of what you give God, but but because of what he has given you, which is his son. Prosperity gospel preachers have have spread a false gospel with false concern for those who are in need. They have filled their pockets with dollars that will serve as kindling for the fires that await them. The second movement is maybe less obvious unless you're a student of theology or history. It's classical theological liberalism. Enlightenment thinkers by the turn of the 18th century jettisoned the historic doctrines of the faith. Okay, they looked at and they judged doctrines like the Trinity, doctrines like the hypostatic union, this is that Jesus is truly God, truly man, united in his person, They judge things like creation out of nothing, the fall and sin there in Genesis 3, the sin atoning death of Jesus. They looked at these and they judged them irrational and they did away with them. Okay, they gutted Christianity of its substance, but they kept something of its shape or its form. They still call themselves Christians. They still met and meet for Sunday worship. They claim to believe in Jesus. But in the place of the Jesus of Scripture, the God-man who died for the sin of the world, they give us a different Jesus, one keeping with the times. And in place of the church's mission to make disciples, which can include a number of things, they gave us instead what has come to be known as the social gospel. Okay, They kept, it's important, they kept Jesus' concern for the poor. Jesus is concerned for the poor. But they changed Jesus... And they changed the nature of his concern for them. 
it became only physical and about temporary suffering. Christian liberalism continues today, high concern for social issues only to be addressed by worldly means. Brothers and sisters, a Jesus that did not die for sin might serve as a rallying point to help the poor now, but he cannot help anyone later. The truly historical Jesus of faith cares about both body and soul, both body and soul, and especially soul. Piper put it well so many years ago. He tells us Christians that we should care about all suffering now, all suffering Especially, especially eternal suffering later. Jesus, it's important for us to understand here in this text, he cares about the poor. I think we see this in his response in verse 8 where he says, you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. What Jesus assumes is his followers will go on caring for the poor. The New Testament continues this concern. Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's vetted in a sense by the apostles there, those who were near Jesus. They asked him to do one thing, Galatians 2.10. They asked only that we would remember the poor which I made every effort to do. The New Testament is great concern that we Christians would care for the poor. Protestant confessional statements and standards early express this concern for the poor. Article 30, the Belgian Confession, this is written in 1561 says, we believe that a true church ought to be governed according to spiritual order that our Lord has taught us in his word. Then goes on to detail that a bit, and then it gives us the effect. So that also the poor and all the afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their need. Article 38 of the 39 articles of the Anglican Church, written in 1571, reads this way. Notwithstanding, every man ought of such things as he possesseth, liberally, to give alms to the poor according to his ability. The second Helvetic Confession writes, this is 1566, it's detailing the responsibility of a minister, of a pastor, is to commend the needs of the poor to the church. Jesus here does not show indifference to the, to the poor. He assumes that his followers will care for the poor. Christians historically have shown great concern for the poor caring both for their physical and spiritual well-being. Have Christians done this perfectly? No. There have been periods of serious neglect and worse yet, exploitation. We see even with Judas here that there are people who claim to love Jesus who will infiltrate the church for their own selfish gain. Jesus expects us to care for the poor, but he honors her gift. She's right to prioritize Jesus here because of what it means. Judas, on the other hand, he's so perturbed by Mary's self-abasement and Christ's exaltation. He's so frustrated by this act because he views it as his own loss. Judas is so entitled, it's what tips him over the edge the gospel writer Mark adds this verse at the end of his account. This is there in Mark 14. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. In the end, Judas got what he wanted. Money, 
and less Jesus. This for him would be the last time that Jesus' gain meant his loss. Behold the pride of people. Judas betrayed Jesus, his teacher, his friend, his Messiah, his Lord, his king, for a bag of silver. Here's what's so remarkable about Jesus. Jesus knew all along. John already told us earlier that he knew who would betray Jesus. He knew from the very beginning who would and wouldn't believe in him. Jesus knew more about their money bag than Judas did. He knew where every coin came from, where everyone went to, how often he stole from it. And yet Jesus endured with him the entire time. No doubt because it was necessary on the one hand for him to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and also as an act of mercy to Judas. Day after day, Despite his thievery, he was given opportunity to repent and to believe in Jesus. And day after day, he schemed about how he could gain more at expense of Jesus. Friends, if you are using God as a means of your own gain and you've not been caught, it's not because you're deceiving God. It's because God is being patient with you. He's being kind toward you that you might repent Of your sin. Don't misunderstand his patience as though he's lackadaisical with your sin, especially when it's the kind of sin that comes at the cost of his church and those who are in need. Judas used God for financial gain. It, of course, would not be the last in the history of the church. Judas is also not the only false worshiper in the text. Verse 9, people find out that Jesus is there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. That makes sense. Like you'll go to a circus to see someone breathe fire and swallow a sword. You hear that someone has risen from the dead, you're going to want to go see them. This is precisely the thing that the Jewish leaders hate. Verse 10. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also. They've already resolved to kill Jesus. The chief priests have decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason. Many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Lazarus is the reason why Jesus' glory is increasing and theirs is decreasing. What should we do about it? We should kill him. The leaders oppose Jesus. They will do so under the guise of blasphemy. This man is making himself out to be God. But like Judas Judas using the poor as a shield for his love of money, the Jews will use the law as a shield for their love of glory. Like Judas, they want what Jesus is getting. We're the ones who should be anointed. Jesus already told us about this in John chapter 5. He tells the leaders there, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? John puts it a little more succinctly for us here in verse 43 of this chapter. For they loved human praise more than the praise from God. They will do anything to cling to their prestige and power, 
if Lazarus being alive means people are following Jesus and leaving us, we'll kill him too. Notice once you justify one sin, you'll justify more sins. The religious leaders use God for social gain, for political gain, for status. They're so in love with the praises of people. They're so enamored by their own station. They're so committed to their social status. They're so eager to climb the career ladder. They're so interested in making it onto Jerusalem's 30 under 30. They will do whatever it takes, even killing God and his friend. Brothers and sisters, we should fear the fear of man. It's intoxicating. It will lead you to kill God, to keep him out of your way as you preach about him, to prop yourself up. Notice the irony and the hypocrisy and the tragedy. How many preachers of God's word have made themselves drunk on the praises of people only to run themselves and their people into the ground? Few things will keep us from worshiping God like the fear of man. It's controlling. It's why we sing quietly in the gathering. It's why we close our lips at injustice. It's why we won't share the gospel with those around us. It's why we indulge in the sins of our neighbors and coworkers. It's why we don't confess our sins to our brothers and sisters. And it's why oftentimes we do the things we ought to be doing. We want to hear the acclaim that comes from people. Brothers and sisters, that's bondage. It's bondage. The freest person in this text other than Jesus is Mary. She's so infatuated with Jesus, she could care less about what anybody else thinks. She's so trusting of Christ that she will impoverish herself at his feet. She is found in Jesus free freedom. Freedom from the love of money, freedom from the love of praises of men. She has exchanged both and gained so much more. She has gained God. Brothers and sisters, it is a good thing to give up the praises of people here to one day hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. It is a good thing to exchange material riches here to store up treasures where they will not fade. Jesus is worth it. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is worth it? Do you believe that there is nobody like him? To worship God greatly, you have to know God greatly. In Mark and Matthew's account of this event, they know that Mary anoints Jesus' head. Why? They're stressing that he's the long-awaited messianic king. John stresses that Mary anoints his feet. No doubt she poured enough for his whole body, but John is laying the stress at his feet. Something far lowlier. Why? Jesus gives us a hint in his rebuke to Judas there in verse 7. He says, she has kept it for the day of my burial. Brothers and sisters, is Jesus worthy of our sacrifice? Yes. Why? Consider his sacrifice. The Lamb of God who took your sins upon himself at the cross. All of your self-exaltation, your greed, your thievery. You're fighting with God for his own throne. Jesus took what you deserved upon the cross. Jesus is worthy of everything you can exchange. Why? Consider his exchange. 
Philippians chapter 2, he who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. From the glories of streets of gold to the filth of streets of dirt, from constant angelic praises to the plotting of shameful men, from the judgment throne to the cross of judgment. Brothers and sisters, our exchange is nothing like Christ's. This is why Paul then goes on, for this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We would do well to fall to his feet now acknowledging that he is Lord and Savior. The right response to Jesus' death for sin and his victory over the grave is to anoint him as king of our hearts. It's to give him all that we have here, which is all that we can. Brothers and sisters, there is no one like Jesus. As we will soon sing, as Mary no doubt felt at that evening dinner party, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He's worthy. Let's pray. Father, we declare once again that you, our God, are worthy of all that we could possibly offer. Father, we repent of the ways that we fail to give you the honor due your name. We repent especially the ways that we would seek to use you as a mean of gain for ourselves. God, I pray that you would cause in us a desire to gaze upon your glory in the face of Jesus Christ more and more. That we would be the kind of people that sit at his feet daily. I pray that we would be enamored by the fact that you would send your son to die for our sins. I pray that we would marvel at the hope that we have in his resurrection. God, would you use us to bring glory to yourself from this city to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the opportunity now to continue to respond in worship by singing. Stay with me as we praise our God. Sing, I stand amazed.